Welcome to the Doctors Building Wealth Podcast, the place where we talk about the strategies, habits, and mindset that separate wealthy docs from those who are not. We're your hosts, Leiti and Kenji. Our guest today is Fred Pinto. Fred is an intellectual property lawyer who has dedicated his practice to helping entrepreneurs make better decisions to protect, grow, and ultimately exit their businesses. He is helping us plan our exit from our semi-retired business, and we wanted to have him on the show because we are learning so much through this process and wanted to share those insights with you. With that, let's welcome Fred to the show. Fred, we are so excited to have you here. Can you tell everyone a little bit about you? Yeah, of course. So um, I'm like the boring version of it. I'm a, I'm a lawyer. Um, I work with entrepreneurs. I'm a transactional lawyer. So that specializes in intellectual property. So that's kind of like my technical background. And I've been doing it for almost 20 years, just helping all kinds of business owners, small, medium, large, protect themselves, grow their businesses. Eventually, a lot of them exit their businesses. And over the years, I just really discovered, I guess, that my true passion was helping business owners and entrepreneurs kind of redesign their lives and try to figure out where their business life cycles are in terms of where their business is and eventually what's the end game. How would they like to transition to another phase of their lives, either through you know restructuring their businesses internally or selling their business to a buyer? And that became sort of the focus of my practice over the last few years. That's kind of like what I'm focused on at the moment. Why do you think you got so uh, interested in helping entrepreneurs? I grew up around entrepreneurs. Uh, all my, my, my father, my uncles, everybody around me was essentially unemployable growing up. So they were all what you would call today necessity entrepreneurs. They were entrepreneurs because they couldn't find a job, essentially. I have emotional, effective bonds with entrepreneurs. And when I dove in, when I finished law school and dove into big law, I found one of the parts that was to me very alienating was that we were implementing all these technical solutions for companies, but there was no human connectivity to it. And that to me was, was something that was always very hard, just focusing on the technical and not on the human. And when about 12 years ago, I decided to go independent and start my own legal practice, I started working with humans again. And I started working with individual business owners. And the satisfaction that you get, aside from the money, aside from the intellectual satisfaction of like, you know, fixing a technical problem, the satisfaction you get from helping a person that you like. So you develop friendship relationships with these people. You start to empathize with their challenges, with their issues in their lives. And then when you can actually help them shape an outcome, when you can help them achieve something that they've been waiting for, that they've been trying and working hard to achieve for years and years, it's just so gratifying and satisfying. And, and for me, the ultimate satisfaction is in the relationships and the friendships that I develop with these people. So for me, it's really like a, a human first approach and technical second, right? It's like, let's try to figure out what makes the human being tick. What does this human being need in order to live a better life? And then let's deploy the technical tools that we need to get there. So that's kind of been my approach. Tell us how you uh, help entrepreneurs with their businesses. Is it more of a transactional or is it more of a, let's start with the end in mind? How do you approach an entrepreneur who comes to you for help? Yeah, so it depends, right? Some people have a very specific, discrete, like technical problem. They'll have like a, I deal a lot with intellectual property issues or with uh, data protection and privacy issues or contract issues or there's a litigious situation. So sometimes people come to us with a very discrete problem. 
And it's like, all right, let's scope out this problem. What are the impacts on the business as a whole? How do we fix it? Right. It's more of a problem solving mindset. And sometimes a broader relationship develops where the entrepreneur kind of starts confiding a little bit more what their overall challenges are, where they are in the journey and the life cycle. And you start sort of like just getting in like under the hood and seeing what drives them, what their goals are, what their motivations are. And, you know, working in the M&A space for years and years and years, I think another source for me of motivation is when you see certain mistakes being repeated over and over and over, and you see certain patterns, they almost become predictable. And so I'll listen to people talk about where they are and what they're trying to do. And I'm like, oh, I get like this jolt, this like electric shock of like, oh my God, no, like they're going about it the wrong way, or they haven't considered this piece of it, or they haven't really thought about this here. So I try more and more to develop an approach where I try to really understand where they're going and why. And that's a very like, it's, it's psychology at that level, because it's like every human being is completely different. Every entrepreneur is completely different. Everybody's got super unique motivations and desires and goals and dreams and fears. And trying to figure that out with them and then seeing, okay, what are the consequences of this reality for you in terms of how you structure your business, how you structure your business journey? And that becomes a process that I've been more and more interested in. And me personally, I mean, as I've built a team, my team is handling more and more of the discrete sort of problem solving issues. And I'm becoming more of a, of a confidant, I guess, for slash fake armchair psychologist uh, person for my entrepreneurs and trying to help them figure out broader strategies to really orient their careers in a way that would respond to their needs and their goals and their desires and their purpose more effectively. Yeah. So let's give our listeners a little bit more of a real life example. And I think we could use us because we've been working with you on coming up with our fit to exit for maybe two, three months now. Even though we're not planning to leave our company at any time soon, it's about planning for the five years or 10 years down the road. So can you tell our listeners, if you're an entrepreneur like us, like how do you start the process and what are some of the considerations that, you know, you've brought up to us that we need to start thinking about right from the beginning? That's an interesting process. The first thing I like to do is ask people, what is the spontaneous post-exit life dream that you have? Spontaneously, just intuitively, without th overthinking it, like beating it over the head. What's the spontaneous dream? Like, what is it that you want to do after your quote-unquote exit? Because we all know if you're an entrepreneur and a business owner, typically you're, you're high energy, you're ambitious, you like to, you know, start projects and see your visions come to life. So whatever your exit's going to end up being, it's not going to be the end of your life. It's just going to be the beginning of the rest of your life. So usually what an exit means is that you want something in order to implement a kind of restructuring of your life. And you're driven by these dreams, by these ideals. So what are those dreams like specifically? And I'm always shocked. It sounds like a, like a sort of like an artsy fartsy thing. I am shocked at the extent to which this little exercise allows us to get really high definition optics on actual corporate structuring, tax structuring, legal strategies to actually get you there faster. So the post exit life dream is like, okay, what is it? How is it that you want to live your life after your exit? Okay. How many hours a week do you want to work? What tasks and responsibilities do you want to do within those, those hours? Cause you're going to lounge by the pool and hang out with your friends for a couple months if that much, and then you're going to be twiddling your thumbs, you're going to be bored, you have to fill up that time with something, right? 
So what is it that you're going to be filling up your time with? How much time do you want to dedicate to it? What is it that you're going to be doing? What does your typical year look like? What is your typical quarter, like three month period look like? What does your typical month look like? What does your typical week look like? What does your typical day look like? Right. So I'm, I'm going to interrupt you here, Fred. I yeah. really want those listeners who are investing in real estate to be keeping this in mind too, because they are business owners. And, you know, we, as part of our course, make sure people are thinking through their why and, you know, what they want in cash flow five years from now, 10 years from now. But we're not actually having them think through how do they want to spend each day? How do they want to spend each quarter? Mm-hmm. You know, what exactly are they going to do with their time? And is real estate still going to be involved? Or are they going to sell off their property? So I think this is really important for those of you who are out there who are actually real estate entrepreneurs as well. That's true. Five years from now, they might not want to be a real estate professional and racking up those required hours to meet that criteria. It's shocking, guys. I was working with an entrepreneur just this week. He was very confused. He had three, four different exit options, one internal option with a a partner buyout, a couple of external options, people who were interested in buying the business, really, really confused, also had a job, an important job to that person, a vocational thing that he didn't feel comfortable and trying to renegotiate terms. And there was all this clutter. And I'm like, okay, well, and we had gone through this exercise quickly at the beginning. I'm like, you know what? Let's go back to it. Like, what is the end game? What does the week look like? What is that? And just going back to that and developing a clear optics, it became very clear that two of the options were off the table completely. We narrowed down the focus and it had strong implications in terms of the negotiation at, at the job. Very, very strong implications. So I'm like, start with the end. Another version of start with the end that I really like lately is place yourself in your ideal future and see how it feels. So we all have this idea that we can't get the spontaneous post-exit life. We just can't get it because we don't have X. We don't have Y. We don't have enough income. We don't have enough, right? But an exercise that I find interesting to go through, and I've done it in my own life, and it's very, very interesting, brings you a lot of information, is, okay, my ideal work life, literally, this is the situation for me. My ideal work life is I want to do spend most of my time learning, okay, learning and teaching. That's what I love. And traveling and handling more like the human relationship side of it. So a lot less in terms of the administrative, the accounting, the management, all that daily grind of operations, right? So what I did is I took a two-week period and I placed myself in my ideal future. I said, okay, you know what? I can't afford to do it now, but I'm going to live as if I was able to do it now, okay? And so I actually did it for two weeks. It turns out, first of all, I'm much more able to do it than I was giving myself credit for to begin with. Mm. And secondly, I started noticing little Very basic systems and processes that I could implement today that would give me more capacity to do this more and more right now. And so I placed myself in my ideal future and I'm like, all right, there are a couple things here that are making this not sustainable. But when you actually live it, you see what those things are. And then those become the problems that you attack. And, you know, I want to train people to think even beyond an exit. Like it's really about like, applying some creativity and imagination to your work life and how your work life impacts your personal life. And what if you can start tasting 
a little bit of that post-exit life way before you get to that momentous cinematic moment. Exit, signature, it's done. What if you could start tasting it before? What if it's not like a one and a zero? What if you can get 10% of it like this month? What if you can get, you know, 30% of it this quarter? What if you can get 50% there by the end of the year? Just by working different scenarios and implementing different strategies. And then before you know it, I really believe that most entrepreneurs want an exit because their business life is not structured optimally. I think if they just restructured themselves internally, I believe a really large percentage of them can execute maybe not all of their spontaneous post-life vision, but a big, big, big chunk of it without necessarily needing to find an external third party to come up with a huge number, which is typically what we think of when we think of an exit. External partner comes in. We think of like a Silicon Valley, momentous, multi-tens and hundreds of millions of dollar exit. And it's like, well, first of all, that applies to 0.1% of entrepreneurs. So if you're waiting for that day, it may never come. Second of all, those exits have real ramifications and negative consequences for a lot of entrepreneurs, depending on what you want in your life. And third of all, you don't really, it's just a lack of imagination. You know, we've let Hollywood think for us, right? It's like, it's got to be like a Sean Parker exit. No, that's not true. There are so many other options and tactics and strategies available to you that where you can really get closer to your ideal exit and really to your your post-exit life dream. That's really what it's about. Yeah, I love that. And that's an important point. I think uh, everybody imagines, like you said, the Hollywood exit. But ultimately for us, what we realized is that, you know, we're really passionate about what we're doing. We want to continue doing that on an ongoing basis. So then once we decided that, then that opened up all these different other options. Like you said, an you know, an internal exit where we sell, let's say to our employees. Yeah. Right. And so we stay with the business, but we sell shares to our employees. And it's a way for us to also create some certainty for us because there's a lot of uncertainty with businesses. We have no idea if we can ultimately sell this thing for how much, right? We actually yeah. can like, like I like the, you know, the, the, uh, the blackjack or poker analogy where you could pull some chips off the table, put it in your pocket and you create some of that certainty. You have some money in your pocket from your business. So no matter what happens in the future, you pull some chips off the table. So I really like that kind of like you said, if you, if you can start thinking about what you really want today and actually even starting to implement some of those things, you can actually start to see what it's like to actually exit. And for us, it'd be an internal exit. Right. And Fred, something you've told us before is that there are different drivers for entrepreneurs. Like some people want freedom. Some people want purpose. Can you kind of talk about those different drivers that you see across entrepreneurs? Yeah. So in the fit to exit course that we have, that's really the second exercise is figuring out, okay, once you have the vision, once you know kind of where you're going, what's the end game, then there's the, the reasons. What's your overriding reason? What's your big why? And I kind of like created this little system where we have the three big whys. We've got just strictly maximizing your net payout, which typically is going to require an external exit. And that's fine. If that's where you want to go, there are strategies for that. There's that, that has consequences. We, we teach people how to, how to maximize their chance of getting a, that big maximized net payout. That's one overriding big why. But I think even then that's kind of like an incomplete thought process because it's like, okay, what do you want to do with all of that money? We can get deeper. But it doesn't matter if business to you is all about just maximizing that net. I think I see that a lot with a lot of business owners who are younger and extremely successful. So 
I work with a couple of these who are like, again, like usually like in their late 20s, early 30s, have a massively rapidly growing business. And they don't even have time to really think about all these things. They just want to max out their business for what it's worth. And then, you know, it's like eventually, yeah, we want to maybe spend some time traveling, spend some, but they haven't really fully fleshed it out yet. Okay. But that's one big goal. The other big goal would be achieving freedom from the grind. Okay. So you just want more time. You just want more space. You don't really fully know exactly for what, but you just want more freedom. Okay. You just want more options to do different things, to make different decisions. Usually I see this a lot with my entrepreneurs who are a little bit burnt out. Okay. So again, they're not putting too much thought. They just want to get out of the kitchen. They just want to lower the temperature. They just want space. Some, a lot of times these people just need a good vacation, right? But it's like they take a good vacation and they're back in the kitchen 80 hours a week. And it's like they want freedom again. Right. So that's a really big driver for them. And the third, the third big why would be purpose. Okay. Achieving your purpose, your mission, your meaning in life at a higher level. So usually your business, if you're a very purpose-driven person, is that you have a specific mission, you have a sense of contribution, something that you want to you wanna achieve, something that you want to contribute to the world. Sometimes, you know, you got involved in a business that was not in line with that purpose. Sometimes you got involved in a business that was in line with that purpose, but now it's become just this machine that you've got to manage and it's now impeding your ability to achieve that purpose on a higher level, right? And so these three sort of big whys have really, really intricate uh, consequences all the way down to your terms and conditions in your term sheets, how you set up your contracts, the structure of your transaction, and the trade-offs. So like one that we usually talk about is, and you know, people can say, I want all three. I really hope for you that you'll be able to reach all three, but you can get some of the three but maybe not in equal doses. And in order to have an exit vision that is coherent, you're going to have to kind of do that work of deciding which one is more important for you. What's your number one? What's your number two? What's your number three? How do you weigh them? That's going to have real impacts and consequences on your exit strategy. So one tension is, for instance, between money and freedom. Okay. So you want the maximum net payout that you possibly can, but you also want freedom, but time out. Somebody's giving you a lot of money for your business. And if somebody's giving you a lot of money for your business, first of all, if you want to really maximize your payout, you're going to have to take a payment term. You're not going to get all the money up front, right? You may need to take some money in shares from the buyer because, you know, that's going to be a way for them to kind of amortize that big number that you want, right? So right there, it's going to be, it's going to require uh, 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 you know, you're going to have to wait for your money, right? Now, in between, when you re- when you sign your your exit and you get that final money, there are going to be all sorts of strings attached. Typically, you're going to have to stick around for a few years, right? Because a buyer is not going to give you uh, the biggest possible amount that you can possibly justify for your business without having a, an ongoing contract, right? And usually, you're going to have to sign very stringent and serious non-competes and non-solicitation clauses. And which means that you won't be able to work with the people that you've developed relationships with for a period of probably five years after your transaction, or you won't be able to work in the general area where you were working your area of business for five years, which could really be a problem if you're purpose driven, right? Because if you're purpose driven and you're in that area, chances are you're going to want to do some things in there, right? 
And, and you're probably going to have to give really big indemnifications and representations and warranties. So there's going to be all kinds of streams. So from a freedom perspective, it's not, it, it, there are some clear trade-offs, right? To wanting to maximize your net payout. But if you want to maximize your net payout, let's do it. But if you want freedom, and I think we had that conversation. I said, look, you know, we can probably justify a certain valuation and go get it. It's going to have an impact. You're going to have to sign a long ongoing contract. You're going to have kind of a boss, not really a boss, but kind of a boss that you're going to have to satisfy. There's going to be maybe some creative vision differences. You're going to have to report to people, to the buyer that's really, really shelled out the money. And so that's going to have consequences on your freedom and on the extent to which you can achieve your purpose through your business. And that became something that, you know, I mean, some entrepreneurs for them, as soon as they start seeing that clearly, and we see it as M&A lawyers. So for example, one of my friends exited very successfully, got a really, really large payout. That's what his accountants and lawyers assumed that he wanted. And that's kind of like the default lens in the M&A industry is that, you know, the entrepreneur is just trying to maximize the net payout and the buyer is just trying to get the best deal. Those are the default lenses. But in the case of my friend, that meant he had to sign lengthy non-competes, lengthy non-solicits, couldn't really have anything to do with his field anymore. And he realized after about 18 months that, wow, I mean, this project actually really meant something to me from a meaning perspective. And I can't work with this person anymore. I can't, I can't do this. I can't do that. After 18 months, he's got all this energy. He ended up taking a job, a good job in an unrelated industry. And he goes to the office every day and he doesn't get that much satisfaction out of his job. And he told me, Fred, you know, if I only knew this in advance, I might have restructured it completely differently. I might have taken a little bit less money. I might have retained some kind of symbolic role in the company, retained my ability to do certain types of projects. But, you know, my lawyer was just not thinking in those terms. When we negotiated the transaction, it was all about just get the big bucks. And I realized today, I don't even need most of this money. It's like in investment accounts. And I would have been way happier if I could just keep being active in this industry that's given me so much. And that means a lot to me and that I have a lot to give. And I still have another three years to wait before I can do something in that industry. So it frustrated his purpose, hemmed in his freedom, but he got the big payout. So, I mean, on paper, it's a successful exit. But on a human level, the exit could have been designed better. And that's what we try to teach people to do in fit to exit. How do you design your ideal exit for what you want as a human being, the human considerations first, and then we work our way backwards from there. This week's podcast is sponsored by our free mini course, the four day jumpstart to real estate investing. If you want to learn the exact strategies we use to achieve financial freedom quickly, take the first step by signing up for our mini course at semiretiredmd.com. This episode is brought to you by Dan Peck of Caliber Home Loans. If you're an experienced investor, you'll know just how important it is to have a lender who knows how to work with investors. Now, we've been working with Dan and his team for over five years now, and he's our go-to whenever we need a residential loan for our investment properties. Now, if you're new to investing, you might not know this, but your lender can sometimes be the difference between getting a great deal or completely missing out on it because your lender couldn't close the deal. Now, I did want to point out that Dan can help you not only with your investment properties, but also if you're looking to buy a primary residence or a vacation home. So the next time you're looking for a residential lender, be sure to email Dan at semiretiredmd at caliberhomeloans.com to get a free consultation. Now back to the show. Let's talk uh, taxes because, you know, I think when people think about an exit, you know, they, they, they think about the payout, but they're not necessarily thinking about the taxes. And I think the taxes could 
especially if we think about real estate, right? You're always thinking about, okay, if I sell this property, I'm going to have to pay capital gains. So you think about 1031s or other ways to shelter that income. Talk to us about how taxes might impact your fit to exit or exiting. Taxes are huge because people think of a number, but that's not your real number. Your real number is that number minus the taxes you're going to pay, right? So it's really all about maximizing your net payout, right? And even in from an internal exit perspective, tax is super paramount. I call the government your first and last partner and probably your most expensive partner. So managing that becomes extremely important. So many business owners I know say, you know, yeah, you know, my CPA does my tax filings. It's like, that's beautiful that your CPA does your tax filings, but that's not what you need. What you need is proper tax strategies. First of all, to maximize your, your net payout on a year by year basis with your filings, but also on your liquidation, right? Also when it comes to your exit planning. And so many people are just not set up the right way. Like there's a 1202 tax exemption, for instance, where people can get up to $10 million capital gain uh, exempt payout on their on their final sale. But that only applies, for instance, if you're set up as a C-Corp. So some people, they start off as an LLC and they, they're sort of hemmed in in one corporate structure that doesn't allow them to benefit from certain tax planning measures that are going to be really, really impactful for them down the line. Same thing with an ESOP. You know, you can't structure an ESOP with something other than than, than a C-Corp. So you, you need to set up your structure in the right sort of way for your ultimate exit. You also need to think about your tax residency. So usually an exit means we might become flexible in terms of where we live. Well, if you're kind of flexible about where you live, you might want to think about maybe playing around with your tax residency before you sell your business, right? Or before you start selling shares to employees. And that might mean, you know, cutting down on your taxes. It's like after your exit, you're going to have all this money. What are you going to do with this money? Well, you know, I'm going to invest it in X, Y, and Z. Okay. But there are some places where you can invest your money post exit where you can get tax-free returns like opportunity zones, for instance, right? So it's always like, Training yourself to think, first of all, getting ready for the exit. And then the exit is not the end. The exit is just a point in your life journey, right? And what is it that you're going to be, where is it that you're going to be living? What is it that you're going to be doing with your money? We have a tax module in Fit to Exit where we teach people just broad optics on how to look at their tax strategies so they can develop some really strong biases on their own before they even go to a professional so that when they do go to a professional with their goals, with their desires, their fears, their plan, their professional can quickly give them strategies that are going to be really customized to them. And that's something that, that we, we teach people in, in fit to exit. The question of tax is not the sexiest. It's not the most interesting. We try to make it a little bit fun. We try to kind of consolidate and synthesize and simplify it a little bit. At the end of the day, you're going to need to consult professionals too, but we want to give you optics on these things and how they relate to your goals. Because I mean, you know, tax is like one of the biggest expenses. So it's actually super important to get it right. Now you said taxes aren't sexy, but some of us might disagree. So I'm going to get into taxes and I also want to follow up with that strong bias and validate and make sure we touch on that. But I'm just sitting here thinking about how this is all relevant to our people who right now just have real estate businesses. And I'm realizing how special real estate is because if you own one big company, you sell it at one point. Mm. But real estate is so beautiful because Mm. you can sell off certain buildings. Mm -hmm. And so that actually allows you to take a payout, but actually maintain that cash flow. And so it's really an incredibly unique part about real estate. 
And one thing that we've actually learned about real estate investing as well is in planning our fit to exit and thinking through something called an ESOP where we would actually, you know, have our employees eventually take ownership of our company. We were learning that it's actually possible to take that money that we get in selling to our employees and actually invest it in something called a 1042 exchange where we could go, let's say we get 5 million, we go and put 5 million in a down payment of a property that's a 20, 25 million dollar property. And all of a sudden we actually don't have to pay taxes on the 5 million, which Again, we wouldn't know what deals to buy if we didn't understand real estate. But the fact we understand real estate, we know how to run the numbers, allows us to actually be able to sell part of our company and get that money tax-free, which is, I think, very, tax very deferred, unique. Really, real yeah. estate is really beautiful in that sense because it's uh, it's it's more than just a business that you can exit. It's, it's also an investment vehicle. And so a lot of people who are going to exit a business are going to maybe beef up their real estate portfolio. A lot of people can use real estate, as you guys well know, you're the masters at that, at generating uh, positive cash flows and financing their lifestyle. It is so modular. You can break it apart. You can sell little units of it. You can create different, you can sort of subdivide it in many, many different really interesting ways. And what you're talking about in terms of rolling your capital gains into you know, further real estate development is a great way to build a really, really big real estate portfolio. So yeah, real estate is really something that I think... Um, Ultimately, every entrepreneur who would like to eventually exit should probably learn about real estate, right? What are you going to do with that money? You're going to invest it in the, the markets. You're going to put in an ETF. You might want to consider real estate also. And so I think real estate is something that is um, kind of really fundamental and in the background of all of these conversations. Because, you know, even from a lifestyle perspective, you know, we've talked about this. Like, there are so many different things you do with real estate. Real estate can be just a pure, you know, revenue driver. It could be a long-term speculative thing, or it could be a lifestyle enjoyment thing. I mean, I'm thinking of buying a property now where I'm probably not going to make that much money, but get a lot of lifestyle benefits from and not have to really uh, shoulder the carrying costs. That's really interesting. That's kind of like a post-exit life strategy that's going to be really attractive to a lot of people, right? Not necessarily needing to like buy a place and handle all the like the old school ownership model. Maybe use some short-term rentals, some medium or longer-term rentals to finance the carrying costs. I mean, that's really compatible with a lot of post-exit life visions that you that you run into and you realize that people want to maybe, you know, travel more and spread themselves around or have this one place that they love. So real estate to me is, um, it's much more than just like one business that you want to think of exiting. Even if you exit it, you're going to want to reinvest in real estate most likely to kind of get the best returns on your investment, but also to enjoy your lifestyle. So I find real estate super, super fundamental to this whole uh, conversation that we're having around exiting entrepreneurs and restructuring your professional life and personal life. Talk to us about the strong bias and validation because this is something that I've been practicing it, but I didn't really have a name for what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And I really love how you kind of describe it and how you explain it. I think it's extremely valuable for anybody working with a professional before you work with a professional, you know, to go in with the strong bias and validation. Yeah, for sure. So that came to me over the years as I realized that some people were getting tremendous value from their professionals and other people weren't. And that included myself as an IP professional, as a transactional lawyer. I'm like, man, why is it that this person is getting just such fantastic value from me and this other person? And what I ended up realizing is that when, when I was really just practicing more in it from a technical perspective, I realized that I was, I was really a tool. Okay. <laughs> I know there's the derogatory perspective of it. I was really 
able to achieve certain technical outcomes. But sometimes I didn't have a full download of what the outcomes of the person were, of what their specifics were, about their style. There were so many background elements to them that I did not have access to that I really needed to work with them for like a year and a half before I can really get a full picture and understand how my tools could best be used to help them. And so over the years, I started realizing, and you know, a lot of my clients will hire me, for example, to quarterback their tax planning or to quarterback their exits or to quarterback a restructuring, let's say. And so I have to interact and get the most out of other professionals. And in that process, I realized that the way to do it is really not to expropriate your mind to the professional right at the beginning. That's not the right way to do it because they are professionals or technicians. Okay. They know what they know and they don't know what they don't know. They certainly don't necessarily know you as an individual. If you haven't developed that relationship with them, they don't know all the specifics about your business. They don't necessarily, they for sure will not know as much as you do about your industry. Okay. So there's so many things that they don't know. They might know their tools, but how do their tools interlock to that bigger picture? That's going to take them a lot of time to figure out. And if you expropriate your brain to them, it's going to take them a long time. There's going to be a lot of like fits and starts and ups and downs, and it's going to end up costing you a lot of money. And the approach I developed to fix this is what I call strong bias and validation. So strong bias means before you even enter the door, before you even have a conversation with the professional, you have done your due diligence. You have studied the question. You have figured out your outcomes. You know what you're trying to achieve and why. You have spoken to a few people. You have come up with a couple of solutions that are pretty close to the ultimate solution that you then want to validate with the professional. And that's the second step. And so you really want to work it up as much as you possibly can and get really, really specific about your breaking points. Get really, really specific about your questions, your dead ends, and you mark those down and the reasons why. And then when you sit down with a professional and you start playing tennis with them after having done this exercise, you will start getting highly customized highly because they're capable of doing it. It's just you're not feeding them the information. If it takes them eight months to get the information, it's not their fault ultimately, right? It's your fault Mm -hmm. for having expropriated your mind too quickly. And so you get to a point where you get to customize solutions for you so much faster that, I mean, first of all, a customized solution has more value. And second of all, if you get there faster, it costs you a lot less money. So the value of that is enormous, right? And you're saving in that time as well. So the value of that approach is absolutely amazing. It requires for you to do a little bit of work. You've got to be willing to put in the work. And if you can't do the work, maybe find somebody on your team that could do the work, but walk them through this process of strong bias and validation. The other thing I would say with with professionals is I find there is so much time wasted in going back and forth because of incomplete conversations. So you walk in with your tax accountant and you start having conversations And it's like, okay, well, you're going to have to send me your last two years of your tax returns. And we're going to have to build an organizational chart of your company and this and that. These little items that you could have easily done in advance will, I promise you, it sounds ridiculous when when you say it, but I see it every day. So it's not ridiculous. Months. Okay. 
We're not even talking weeks. We're talking months of delay. Okay. So just preparing yourself a little bit, having all your information handy, having your tax returns, email your CPA right now, ask them you want access to a digital drive with all your tax returns. Boom. Done. Okay. Have an organizational chart of your company, your personal uh, tax filing situation and your corporate structure. Have that done, right? And update every time you change it. Have these basic things at your fingertips on a shared drive, okay? Just get that done. Get that out of the way. And then boom, boom, boom. You can just share it with whoever you want, whenever you want. And sometimes inside the meeting, you'll already be able to, you know, skip steps. And I promise you, save, it sounds ridiculous when I say months, but it's easily months, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the things that I don't think that getting that strong bias, I don't think it's difficult in the end, right? But I do think that it is difficult from a mindset perspective. I think most people, like you said, expropriate the, you know, everything to the professional because they, they go, this is outside of my area, right? And so I think one of the keys is you have to overcome that initial resistance, that initial friction. And say, okay, I can do this. And then once you get that, then you just dig into it and you'll find out that you can understand something that you didn't think you could understand. And you know, sometimes, Kenji, sometimes you have a big boneheaded mistake. Okay. Sometimes just a really fundamental thing that you don't understand. Okay. And you're just, you're just, as you're thinking about the problem, you're banging your head against the wall and it's a bit, you're almost ashamed. It's like, oh my God, the pro is going to fix this. I'll, I'll just pay him. Okay. But you don't realize even when that's the case, there are a lot of things around that big bonehead mistake that you have figured out, that you know about. And so if you've identified the source of your confusion clearly, and there's a lot of other pieces that you figured out, and you enter the consultation with the professional, and right off the bat, the professional can fix that in literally in three minutes. They'll explain that confusion. All of a sudden, you collapsing that confusion will start interlocking with other things that you have figured out and your knowledge about the situation will be accelerated tremendously and you're now having a really educated conversation with your professional and that accelerates them and I guarantee you professionals, it it might sound like professionals enjoy it when things take long and are inefficient. Yeah, you know, people with bad ethics, that's true, but a really qualified professional who's really busy wants to work fast and wants you to be satisfied and wants to deliver a lot of value to you. And so we love it when people come in prepared and with a strong bias and you can help them just, you know, clear up the cobwebs a little bit and figure things out and we'll focus our energies on the things that really matter. We can deliver a ton of value super fast. And then all of a sudden you're using those tools for what they're supposed to solve and not just, you know, giving them ultimately more than you should in terms of a burden, right? Yeah. So talk to us about uh, Fit to Exit. I'm really excited about this program. You've really kind of dedicated this to entrepreneurs. Yeah. So yeah, Fit to Exit is, it, it's, it's like a, like, like, like a passion project for me because I, I realized that a lot of these strategies, a lot of these tools, I was kind of deploying to like individual entrepreneurs one on one, but bits and pieces and really under the kind of like billable hour lawyer model, there was really no other model for me to do it in. So. Giving them a lot of this information would have been just extremely costly. And even if it would deliver value for them, I didn't necessarily feel I wanted to push that on them or force them. I would just kind of focus more on the things they really needed. And But over the years, I've just seen so many entrepreneurs making these basic mistakes. It always comes back, the same issues, how to set up your corporate structure, what clauses to really focus on in your contracts, 
how to lock in your intangible assets, how your life goals impact the structure of your transaction, understanding the different options for exits, understanding an external exit versus an internal exit to employees or partners, how to put in those partnership clauses in advance so that they're ready for exit scenarios. All these different things kept coming back over and over. And understanding also, if you're looking for an external exit, like how does a buyer look at it? Ultimately, you're building a business for them. So how do they evaluate businesses? Why is it that they would want to purchase you? Have you ever thought about that? It's not only about just like how much money I'm making. It's not, nobody does an, uh, an objective evaluation like six times EBITDA and that's the price that somebody accepts to pay for you. That's rarely the way it works. People will subjectivize their thinking in terms of purchasing you as a company. So all of these mistakes and ambiguities that entrepreneurs go through that they depend on their lawyers and accountants to really help them figure it out. But their lawyers and accountants are charged them on an hourly model. You know, we'll deploy technical tools to them. It's not really the right model. And when really, in all honesty, talking to you guys about what you did with uh, Semi-Retired MD and the online course, I just found that this format of an online course is just really perfect because in a super affordable format, I can put like 20 hours of content and I can really give everybody, every single entrepreneur can get that baseline of optics and strategies and understandings that they need to really understand their entrepreneurial journey and really like prevent a lot of mistakes, really understand a lot of basic things they're probably not doing that they can do. They don't necessarily need a lawyer or an accountant to implement. Yes, for some of them, it is better to hire a professional. I talk about that. But if you're going to do stuff yourself, at least know how to do it and at least know what it is that you in particular should be focusing on doing. And so it became really exciting to me that I could, you know, put all this knowledge in, in, in one place and, and, and deploy it to like all entrepreneurs in a super affordable way and build a little community around this where entrepreneurs can help other entrepreneurs and professionals can help entrepreneurs who are looking to exit or restructure. And so it became a, 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 a project I've become really, really passionate about. We're launching our first class on October 26th, which is really, really exciting. And it's gone fantastically well. It's been a lot more work than I thought it was going to be just putting everything together and making sure it's not long winded, making sure that it's, that it's short, that it's snappy to the point, adds a lot of value and that I give people tools that they can actually implement right away. I, I like what I call Monday morning knowledge. Okay. So I, I listen to a lecture and there's stuff I can do on Monday morning. That, that's what I like. I like when it's highly useful. You know, I met you guys in the Tony Robbins community. A lot of times in those seminars, what we get is Monday morning knowledge. It's like, wow, this is something that's going to help me next week. And so, so that's kind of how I developed the, the, the program, trying to give things that are, you can immediately act upon and that are going to immediately add value to your business. And so super, super excited about it. I thank you guys. I mean, you guys are part of the trailblazers that are, that are showing people how this revolution in online education can be so monumentally helpful to people in their business life, but also in their personal lives. I, I, I think a lot of times that the separation between the two is overstated, right? Your business life is going to have a huge impact on your personal life and, and back and forth. And so I think both of us, what connects us is this, this, this perspective of restructuring or retooling your professional life to bring it more into line with the kind of life that you want to live. So that's kind of the perspective throughout the course as well. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So we'll have a link to the uh, course in the show notes. Uh, and, uh, you know, I really love that because this is one of the reasons why we built the course as well, right? If you think about the 20 hours of instruction, you know, we had, you know, we helped friends build their businesses for years, but there's only so much you can do in a phone call or a conversation, right? They're not getting the 20 hours exactly. of instruction that we have in our course. And so it's just a really great format to deliver it. And so I think, you know, I'm really excited for this course. for sure. Yeah, we'll both be in it. Yep, so definitely. we're going to be learning with all of you guys. Amazing. So it's been really great having you, Fred. And, and we close all, all of our podcasts with uh, two questions for our guests. The first one is, what is your definition of rich? Oh, man, that's a big one. My definition of rich is it's definitely not quantitative. It's definitely much more qualitative. So it's if you think of like the highest, the highest version of your life. Okay. What are the elements that are required, right? To live that version of your life over the long term and then being able to sustain that financially. So for me, it would be more financial sustainability towards a state of enhanced well-being over the long term. And I know that sounds like a little bit conceptual, but it's really, my definition of rich is not like a hundred million dollars. Like it's it, to me, if, if you start uh, escalating just the quantities, it's because you probably haven't been creative enough in putting time and energy into your vision. And I would challenge a lot of people. A lot of people have have enough money to execute their highest vision of life. And they just feel like they're not rich enough. They're comparing themselves to other people. They're, they think it's, a, it's another number that they need, but really it's a lack of imagination. So for me, a really financial sustainability towards a vision of life that promotes your well-being over the long term. If you could make that happen, you're rich. You're definitely rich. Awesome. And what is one mindset, habit, or strategy that separates someone who is rich versus someone who is poor? Mm, I would say the importance of strategy overall, like strategic thinking. So just thoughtfulness, right? Just use your mind to kind of map it out. Use your mind to kind of understand all of the different dynamics without neglecting anything, Have, developing a 360-degree perspective of it, trying to think through the dimension of time as well. And then trying to find like the Pareto principle, right? Trying to find the one thing that brings the biggest impact. And so not trying to get there by brute force, trying to get there by design and by that sniper rifle. So to me, that perspective, the strategic mindset is really what separates people who can achieve that, that faster than others. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we often talk about, you know, you know, it's important to think, right? Think of better questions. But I think a big barrier for people is that they don't set aside time to think, right? So I think that's not. Or they, really or they just work harder and yep. not smarter, Bingo. right? That's and right. we, we've fallen into that before too. For oh sure. yeah, I do as well. I do all the time and I, I've got to heed my own words, but it's tempting, right? Cause you'll, 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 you'll find a couple of insights, a couple of, of breakthroughs and then boom, all of a sudden there's like more work coming down and then you're just trying to power through it. So it's having the discipline to kind of keep repeating it over and over, right? Persistence, I think, would be another one as well, which is not the same thing as just working hard. It's just having a, a disciplined mindset to go back to the things that work. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Fred, for being with us today and talking about Fit to Exit. We look forward to seeing you again, hopefully soon. Anytime, guys. As you know, I'm a huge fan of you guys, what you guys are doing, the vision. So anytime I can contribute to you and your community, uh, it would be my absolute, absolute pleasure. And I, I love to... To do this with you guys, to share a mind space with you is always, uh, is always very interesting. Awesome. Thank you so much, Fred. All right. 
The Doctors Building Wealth podcast provides information only and does not provide any financial, legal, tax, medical, or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own financial, physical, mental, and emotional well-being, decisions, choices, actions, and results. You should contact a professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.